Hi, my name is Isabella Johnston, the Intern Whisperer. Today's tip of the week is about continuous learning. Remember, you also have to be willing to keep learning. Everybody does. Think of how fast everything is changing in this world. You log into whatever your favorite platform is and oh my goodness, there's new changes. There's new terms. All kinds of stuff is going on. Just because people in your organization are your employees does not mean that you know everything about your business. You need to be open-minded. You need to listen to them. Older generations can bring experience to the table, while younger generations bring the new perspective. And they're way ahead many times on cutting-edge technology. You want to maintain a culture of openness and respect and give everyone in the company a voice regardless of age and background. This gives you even more respect as a leader. Welcome to the Interim Whisper. Our show is all about the future of work and also innovation. And so today this guest is Marsh Sutherland and he is in Boston. I met him when I was in Boston and he is in the HR field. He's going to be sharing all of this wit and wisdom that he has from being in the HR recruiting field for a while. Welcome to the show, Marsh. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm really glad. I always like to have HR people on the show for sure. And I guess I should, you know, I asked you this when I met you, but I'm sure our listeners were going to know I'm throwing in a curveball for you right now. Where did the name Marsh come from? Because I sit here and I go, oh, wow, that sounds like a, either a military or a, some kind of an actor or something like that. Or are you really a spy? I'm not sure. <laughs> so my my great 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 grandfather came from Germany named George Seamarsh and I have the actual plaque where he renounced his allegiance to the Chancellor of Germany way back when. So it was actually M A R C H. He had all daughters. Uh, one of his daughters named her son Walter Marsh Cochran, and then I was given the name Marsh, you know, named after my grandfather. Oh, that's a cool story. And it's really nice. Did you pass that name on to your own children? It works for a male or a female name, though, honestly. I, I did not do that. Yeah. It's kind of like Kim Kardashian, you know, where it's Northwest, all of these, you know, kind of random names, but they are pretty cool. And so is the name Marsh. I like it. All right. So five words. We always kick off the show this way. Five words to describe you and why those five words. And you can do them one by one. I would say relentless because whenever I get my eye on something or I have a goal, I pursue it relentlessly to achieve that goal. Um, I'm a dad, and that's probably the thing that's given me the most joy in my life. I feel like my kids are 16 and 18, but I feel like I've been raising them for 35, 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, they kids do not grow up fast, <laughs> believe me. No. I feel like I'm entrepreneurial because I'm always thinking outside the box and pursuing different ways to accomplish things. I've also done eight startups, sold or launched four applications. I've sold two of my companies. Um, I, I'm fun loving. I'm always looking to bring joy and happiness to other people because that's pretty much what life is about. And water skiing is my favorite sport. So I'm kind of obsessed with that. Even when I drive, sometimes I feel like I'm going around a water ski buoy back when I used to do tournaments. Mm. Did you win any uh, trophies or awards or money? Most of them. <laughs> yeah, really? That's cool, too. So yeah. um, 
Did you also, did you do it in college? Because I know some schools have a, like down here at Rollins College, they have a water, water skate team. I actually, um, they didn't have Arizona State University water ski team, but I was helping the Phillips family to create the team. And they did end up creating it after I left um, Arizona State and they did win the national championships. I'm very proud of our, our Sun Devils down there for their water ski team. Wow, that's exciting. That is, yeah, congratulations on that. I, that's cool to be the person that got to start something and create a legacy that way. Really nice. Where Arizona State is in Arizona, but it's in Tempe. I, I also started the entire um, campus-wide recycling program as well because once you go in there, I see all the Evian bottles and all the Coke, you know, cans being thrown in the garbage. And being a native Washingtonian tree hugger, I just it annoyed the hell out of me. The Evian rep was actually another competitive water skier, so I talked to him. I guilted him into giving us a bunch of recyclable containers with Evian on the side distribute that around campus and I, I was able to get a bunch of the uh, basically every college has their student groups I got student groups to then collect all the recyclables and bring them to a central location for recycling so that was another legacy I left you know at Arizona State back in 1994. Yeah that's very entrepreneurial also what was your major? Um, well my undergraduate major was law with minors in math and philosophy and my I earned a MBA in um, operations management. I earned a, a law degree in business law. Mm. And so here you are over in the recruiting field. Law is a really good segue because of employment law, but why did you choose to go into like the recruiting side of HR? Because there's so many roles you can be in in HR. Yeah, I did a lot of things in technology myself. I've been a technology consultant. I've done sales. I've been insurance claims adjusting. I've been a chief marketing officer before. I've done a lot of different things, but the thing I'm best at is networking and connecting people. And I, it's a great way to make a lot of money, you know, uh, with a, with a remote work kind of vibe and uh, to be able to be home for my kids. I was, you know, I'm a full-time single father for my father, my children as I raised them. So it was easy for me to run my own recruiting agency, you know, work from home and make a lot of money to afford our lifestyle. Mm, that is nice. Super, super nice. Yeah. Because when you're recruiting, just for our listeners, when you're recruiting, you look for mid to senior level people because you get paid by those companies for, you know, that top talent that they're looking for. Correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So most of our listeners are people that are in that range of like 22 to about 55. Um, but for some of them, honestly, they're graduating college. Your kids are going to be the exception for sure because they know what a recruiter is, but most of them don't know. And they think that if they go to a recruiter, then that means that they it's going to cost them money. You know, you can definitely shed some insight, but I'd like to hear about your startups that you created. You said eight. That's yeah, I've a worked lot. Eight. It is. I've, I'm kind of, I'm working, sort of working on one right now, but it's a bit controversial, so I, I don't think I'm going to move forward with it. Um, but yeah. I sold Social Road to Unified Inbox in 2014. I sold Founder Matchup to um, to Co-Founders Lab in 2012. Uh, launched, um, what did I launch? I launched Charity Check was my favorite one, where whenever you check in on Facebook, you know, Using our app, you would actually be raising money for your favorite charity or cause. Oh. I went through a couple of accelerators like that. Um, one was 
Nine Mile Labs in Seattle back in 2016. I also was co-founding CEO of, of a cannabis social network called Social High. We grew it to 32,000 users in 72 countries um, until I departed in 2016. So. Mm, wow. Those are really, really energetic. Uh, a lot of a lot of engagement that you were going in, for sure. Um, you said that you, you wear many hats when you're with startups, and you certainly have that as your background, based on the fact that you can go into HR, law, or, you know, anything that's legal, and then you have marketing. I mean, you're kind of like everybody's dream co-founder, it seems like. Thanks. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, one nice thing about you know, having done so many things in my life is that when I'm actually recruiting for salespeople or software engineers or marketing people um, or consultants, I've often walked in their shoes before. So when I'm talking to project managers, I can talk to them about, you know, different things like, you know, the, um, I can't remember the term right now, but um, critical success factors. I can bring up a lot of the technical terms within a certain profession and talk with them in depth about that. So so I can screen them pretty well because I've actually I've actually walked in their shoes before. Yeah. What's your favorite interview question? Uh, my favorite interview question is what salary will you happily say yes to and do do a little dance, a little jiggy dance. And they line <laughs> up and I'm like, all right. And our answer at OSU is normally, well, you know, we'll, we'll pay you more than that. So we pay very high salaries at OSU. We really value our employees. We're very generous with options that should be worth millions of dollars, you know, with a $10 billion exit someday. Wow. Is that company also a startup? Yes, it's a Series B startup. Uh, we are looking to get a Series C in January. Wow. How much is Series C? Do you mind me asking? I don't know if you can say. I don't think I can disclose that right now. It's yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Confidential information. Yeah, got it. Anyway, well, so how'd you land your gig with Oceant? So I landed my gig with Oceant by looking on, um, I think it's, what was the name of Venture Fizz is where I found the, the job. But I've, I've done recruiting for a good 10, 12 years in my own agency. I've worked internally at several companies. I think the fact that they liked that I had recruited for InterSystems and a couple of other database product companies got them jazz. I'm also the Angel Hack Ambassador for Boston. I have 29,000 LinkedIn connections. I've I'm very involved in the tech startup community here in the Boston area. And I think it just, I think that that was, and also I was filling one job a week at Doble before. And when I, the fact that I was very productive and very well connected, I think was what was attracted, attracting them to make me an offer to join them. Oh, wow. That is pretty exciting. Um, I did not know that based on, you know, I remember looking at the website and I thought they'd been, how long have they been around? Because it looks like they've been around for a while, but I'm, I think 2018 is when they're incorporated. They really started work on research in 2016, but I believe they incorporated in 2018. Hmm. Okay. So about five years. Yes. Around there. All right. Um, your involvement in the uh, startup Boston community. I, I know I met you on that cruise that they, the Boston Harbor cruise, that was a lot of fun. Um, the networking there is just so totally different than what I've experienced in Orlando. Do you think that it's comparable to things that are like in San Francisco? And are you, well, do you know what the SAS PR conference is also in San Francisco? I've heard of the SAS PR conference. I think San Francisco probably <clears throat> has better conferences. You know, they are a larger startup community. 
larger meetup groups, but I was—I do know that Boston is comparable to New York because when I was running Founder Matchup, you know, I had events in New York City as well as Boston, and they're very comparable. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, 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 definitely there. So I got a ticket to go to the SAS TR conference, and it's coming up in September. Um, and it's where anybody can go and meet if you have a SaaS platform. Do you consider your product a SaaS platform? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. So how you can get there with a, uh, a complimentary ticket is if you meet a DEI requirement. So is anybody in your leadership team a, a woman or a minority, uh, an underrepresented person of color, I guess I would say? Um not our not our c-level executives unfortunately yeah it has to be yeah somebody like that because um anyway i got a ticket it's like two thousand dollars and i'm going there that is the 13th september 13th through the 15th and i think that's when the boston event is going on also right at tech week i believe so yeah yep yeah i cannot come i had i'm sitting there going boston san francisco so san francisco it is that's where i'm (laughs) going to be yeah i'm excited um, okay, so we've talked about your background and your industry, how you got into it, but I'm really interested in hearing what tips and suggestions do you think that our listeners could benefit from when you look at resumes? What is it that they should have that would help them to stand out? Well, it really depends on how easy it is for me to read. Um, I don't need much, you know, in terms of summary, but really I'm looking at what the skills are. Yeah. You know, people list the skills, but then I also want to see under each position, which skills were used under each position. Mm-hmm. Uh, ideally, if it's like some sort of performance oriented job, like, you know, sales, it'd be great to see. Measurable. Yeah. Like what the metrics were for performance, you know, what they achieved and all that uh, mm-hmm. versus like sold stuff, like achieved 150% of an OTE, you know, 100% of, of of my of my goal for sales or things like that, you know, more like metrics around performance type jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, I'm really interested in seeing, you know, what they did um, in a very highly detailed level to make sure that they're relevant and what skills they used in each role. Mm. Yeah, when we're talking about skills, I usually define them as cognitive skills, like problem solving, critical thinking, not just tasks that are more of the outcomes that come out of those types of cognitive skills? What are you referring to with skills? Um, I'm, I'm referring more towards like whether you do C++ or JavaScript, you know. Okay, languages. How good you are. How recently have you actually used that language? Like at OSINT, we're very keen on our senior and higher engineers, you know, having very current strong C++ level experience. Otherwise we, we pass on them, but for junior engineers, we're happy to take a Java or a Python, you know, developer, engineer, and train them in C++. Do you use anybody that's even in the game industry that's uh, that knows C++? Uh, no, not really. We're looking more for, like, highly performant financial trading applications and other database, you know, basically highly performant scalable applications, gotcha. like, like stock trading apps where a millisecond can, can make you lose $100,000. Mm, wow. Okay. Um, how do you feel about offshore and domestic um, working across, you know, any of those types of uh, remote opportunities? 
I know that I get hit up at least twice a day, twice a day by somebody that's offshore saying, hey, you know, we can come and help you with this. Yeah. I have my own team, they're internal. So I, you know, politely say thank you, but you know, I've got this. Uh, I don't ever get people from the US asking to come and work with me. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, we are a full-time employer at, at OCM, we don't hire offshore consulting companies to do our own work because we're super elite in, in our hiring. I think for our interns and software engineers out of college, we hire the statistic was 0.67% of all applicants, so less than 1% of all applicants. Mm -hmm. um, we did actually hire two senior level people uh, this last week, one in Bulgaria, one in Germany, and we're trying to hire someone in Austria right now as well. So if it's a senior level person, we're happy to make an offer to have them come on board. Uh, but for more junior level candidates with less than five years of experience, we want to have them live here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me also. So how many languages can you speak if you're well, working with people across all of those? I know just I speak English. I did take German back in high school, but that was like 40 years ago. So, <laughs> so Duolingo is your friend. <laughs> you can say Duolingo es mi amigo. <laughs> That's like, I've got that one down really well, but it says I'm 15% proficient. My goal is to be, I don't know, we'll say 80% proficient by the end of the year. And I'm, I'm going to put a little plug in here for Duolingo because they do have programs to even partner with companies on that. That's to pick up skills. So how do you handle those types of everybody speaks English when they interview with you? Is that the thing or? That's, that's it. Hmm. Is the company also bilingual? Do you have other people that can, you know, fill in the gaps if needed? Uh, we do, but you know, our we have I'm, our we have a very international community of people. Yeah. But primarily, you know, for as my VC friend Sean Broderick said, I was asking him about one of my apps about localization of it for language. He says, "Don't worry, Marsh. You know, we we won. <laughs> so just do it in English. The rest of the world speaks English." Um, so, yeah, we actually have, you know, fluency in English is one of our requirements. Oh, yeah, that is that's really valuable. You know, this is kind of off topic, but it's not. I use Google for my um, my drive and my calendar system and all of those good things. Um, when I needed support with Google, I loved being able to call them and, and they took that away. Now you can't call for live support. But the people were so well trained, no matter what country they were in, they could understand the problem, they would be able to fix the problem very quickly because of their training was so great. I'm really sad that they don't offer that anymore. And I find it a truly valuable benefit for any company to provide is that type of global help where people are so fluent in a language. It's, you know, it's, it's so comforting. Yeah. I'm sure we could probably provide support in multiple languages to clients, but right now for hiring internally, you know, to actually work with each other inside right. of we, we do require fluent English. So do you ever cross out of just recruiting? Do you ever want to be in a different aspect of HR? Not really. This is what I'm good at. It's a kind of, it's kind of a combination of sales in a way. Oh yeah. I try to, I try to pre, when I'm doing my opening, my preliminary screen, I'm really selling the people in the company and providing them with information about where we came from, information about our accomplishments, 
the benefits of working for us. I send them an email, which I have already set ready to go with our benefits guide up front. Uh, we have an equity estimator that I allowed that I have I'm authorized to send out immediately, you know, to help really entice candidates because the ones we're talking to typically have two or three offers, you know, because we are talking to the top candidates right now. Oh wow, that's great. Definitely trying to pre-close them. Like I said, my final question is, you know, what what salary will you happily say yes to uh, versus looking for a range? I goes, you know, that way if I come back to them, I can advocate internally for that offer. Like if it's $120,000 or something like that, you know, I can say I can get authorization for that. When I bring it to them, I could say the offer is $125,000. If they say, well, you know, I'd like some more, I'd be like, well, you told me you'd say yes to this. So that way I can use that, you know, in negotiation saying, you already said you say yes. Like what's changed? Like what's different? You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So other than start at the low end and they're like, if they're at like 120 and <clears throat> they say 120 to 160, you know, if I come back at 120, I'm going to have to do this whole negotiation thing. I really just know the number up front that they're going to say yes to me, you know, and just continue to build the love and build the love and get them excited. And as they go through the process, send them emails saying, Hey, you did a great job. Here's next. You know, here's the LinkedIn profile. The person you're going to talk to next. I try to help them get prepared. I send them a coding interview one and two preparation email as well. That way they're prepared for the, for the interviews and just try to help them along. Mm-hmm. How many of the, people that come through the door are women. Have you seen a rise in the number of women that are applying for programming positions? You know, not really. I'd say probably two in 10, unfortunately. I'd rather see a lot more. I'd rather yeah. see five in 10, you know? But unfortunately, it's like two in 10. Yeah, I, I've kind of thought that was the case. Usually um, here in Orlando, we have something called, um, you know, Girls Who Code. And that, that focuses on middle and high school um, ages for sure. And I've seen like about 50 in there, 50 young women in there. There's also something called FIRST, and that's this robotic program. I see a lot more girls going into that field, which, you know, it's STEM. It definitely is. It's not programming, but some of it can be. And then lastly, there's um, another one. It's, you know, women who code. And there's probably about the same number, about 50, maybe 60 women that are part of that group. So I don't see the numbers climbing much. And I just wondered if globally, if maybe it's changing. Uh, yeah, you get, you're giving me some insight for sure. I don't know. What are you, how could we change that? What do you think we should do? One of my startups was also this thing called Junior Hack, where the idea was going to the, the elementary schools and the middle schools having hackathons using the scratch language to build objects and stuff in my in minecraft and then compete on that because that way if you can get in at the elementary school age you can probably get more minority and more female participation mm -hmm. um so i think we need to introduce scratch at a younger age you know into the middle schools and make that required curriculum for elementary schools and um and middle schools so scratch is out of mit it teaches very basic object-oriented programming using blocks and things like that. So, Yeah, they have a lot of those kind of programs available down here also in Florida. So I'm really glad to see that there's really been a strong push for it. Yeah. And I don't think Florida is as progressive as, you know, other states are with, you know, anything in STEM. Um, something when I was teaching um, middle school, I went to a teacher in service and they had this workshop on 
how to bring economics into the classroom. And I was an English teacher. And I found that so refreshing because I actually implemented, like I had play money, like Monopoly money, and I was working in the project. So I had to go and incentivize, you know, kids getting interested in education. And so there was a lot of ways that they could make money. And every Friday was a, uh, a bank day. So they were saving, they were learning how to save money. They were learning how to you know, buy something if they wanted to. I had a giant treasure chest, so to speak, in the room. And it was like movie cutouts and, you know, posters, things that kids would like. Anyway, um, it got real street value. And the kids were actually buying the play money to go and get either something at lunch or do, you know, get a first one on the bus. It was really funny that it could have that kind of effect. But I think... Go ahead. Let's say back in Gainesville, when we lived there, my son attended the Lofton High School Academy of uh, Gaming and App Development. So that was pretty neat that you could do that. And what is that school called? Lofton High School. It's a public high school in, in Alachua County. And a sub part of the high school is called the Academy of Gaming and Mobile Apps. So they mm -hmm. go straight up with game design and very basic kind of programming. It was a really good mixture of, of boys and girls in that. That's good to hear. Is, is that what your kids, are they both going into STEM careers? Um, my son wants to be a programmer and my daughter wants to be an airline pilot. Great. That is encouraging. I bet you're excited about that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, coming back over here, I'm going to ask you some fun questions. We're going to mix it up a little bit now. So given uh, your favorite quote, what is it? Why do you choose that as your favorite quote? My favorite quote is uh, plan your work and work your plan. Uh, the funny story behind it is I saw it on my brother-in-law's bathroom wallpaper he had just installed. It's just kind of stuck with me and I end up keeping a bunch of mini legal pads and having a list of things to do. And I, I like to plan my work in advance and then just kind of execute and cross off the things that I have to do. Mm-hmm. So isn't that a book, though? I, that feels like I've seen that as a book title. I don't know. All I know is it was on my brother-in-law's wallpaper back in like the 90s. Yeah, yeah. I really feel like I've seen it. Um, good impact. Uh, let's see. Hardest lesson that you ever had to learn and it changed your life. I think it was to stop blaming other people for my emotions, um, to take responsibility of them. I went to, you know, most of us say, well, you made me feel this way or whatever. I went to something called Landmark um, Forum, and which yeah. is run by Landmark Worldwide, and learned that really, you know, that my emotions are my choice. You know, I can, I can regulate them, you know, just because someone says something to me or whatever, you know, it doesn't mean it's true. You know, I can either choose to be happy or choose to let it go. And I think that's the biggest lesson I've learned. Yeah. And also, I also learned that, you know, if you're someone's mad at you, you, you don't defend yourself. You say you repeat back to them what they told you, you know, OK, now you said this and help me understand why you feel that way. And that way you try to put yourself into their shoes, to understand why they're upset with you. Usually it's a misunderstanding, you know, because no one really intentionally tries to hurt other people emotionally. You know, it's just usually a misunderstanding is what it is. So if you can work through that, then you're both better off. Mm hmm. Yeah. Many times it's hard. Uh, I learned this one also is if you're having a disagreement with somebody, if you go and say, here, give me your hands. 
You cannot be angry with somebody when you're holding their hands. It's very hard. That touch, it breaks right, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always healthy to go for walks before you're ready to say something that's going to cause more damage <laughs> than good. Yeah. Just don't say it. <laughs> yeah. I would say to, you know, whoever it was, whether it was my mom or a significant other, I'd be going, okay, I'm going to go for a walk. When I come, I'll come back when I'm, you know, out of the emotions and then let's have a talk about this because, you know, that why, you know, life is way too short to do anything other than that. All right. What are you most grateful for and why? I would say that I'm still alive. My former wife died in October 2013. And, you know, there's people that die every day of cancer and other ailments, you know, and I just wake up happy. I'm alive every day that I get to have the opportunity to spend time with my kids, which my my former wife doesn't anymore. You know, she left very prematurely. She didn't get to see the kids grow up. And I'm just thankful to wake up every day, you know, alive. Yeah, I'm sorry about that, too. I remember when you told me that when we met and I had lost my mother also, it was cancer and uh, a youngest brother, too. And it's just always it never leaves you. I mean, they're there. They're, I don't know about you, but for me, I always feel like they're with me, around me somewhere. Yeah, I see a fly once in a while. I think, oh, is that Betsy? Fire <laughs> <laughs> bike. Oh, it's Betsy. There's Betsy checking us out. Yeah. And my dog, Toby, may be actually Betsy. Who knows? <laughs> Reincarnation? Maybe. You never know. He mm -hmm. came to us about a month after she passed away. So. Oh. He, you mean he came off of the street or you picked him up? Uh, at we, a we, adopt, we adopted him about a month after their mom passed away. Yeah, oh, gotcha. Yeah, that is truly hard. I don't know if that's the biggest impact that you've had on your life. Maybe there's other things. There's always things. I don't know about you. The death of my family um, was hard also, but I think running a startup and, and doing this this is the hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life. And it's also helped me get better at being more focused, I think, and also just understanding what it is I have to bring to any any type of uh, relationship, work, personal, you know, friends, all of those things. What is the hardest thing that has left a big impact on your life? Um, I would say... I mean, lose my mom, but she was a fantastic role model. She taught me to love unconditionally. She was always there for me to forgive me, you know, unconditionally, no matter what I said or did. Um, and she taught me, you know, one of the hardest lessons back in 2012, you know, when I was heartbroken was that, you know what, Marsh, you're so good at selling people between your salesmanship and your, you know, being a, being a lawyer and all that, you are so good at convincing people to your way of thinking that sometimes you just have to accept, you know, their opinion and not try to convince them otherwise. You know, people are allowed to have their own opinion. If you're not the right one for them, you have to accept you don't have to sell that, sell them that you are the right person, you know, or that How did that are. make you feel? It was a huge relief. It was a huge relief to know that, that I can, other people can have an opinion, you know, the difference from mine, you know, namely whether or not I'm worthy as a, as a husband or not, you know, or, or, or as a, as a boyfriend and it's okay. You know, it was a yeah. 
massive relief off my shoulders when she shared that with me because I, I did used to do that. I did used to really, you know, try to fight, you know, to keep a relationship. And now I'm like, you know, it's fine. I'm good. So yeah, I, it, it's it's I, I've changed around the um, what's that the uh, the prayer, the serenity prayer. Yeah. Instead of saying, you know, God grant me the the serenity to accept the things I can't change, I say, God grant me. The serenity to accept, you know, uh, other people I can't change, you know, the uh, whatever it is to change myself and the wisdom to know the difference, you know, mm -hmm. the ability to change my own, the courage to change my own, uh, my own feelings and the mm -hmm. wisdom to know the difference. So that's kind of my little change up I did on the serenity prayer. Yeah, I get it. Somebody at the office was talking to me um, and I work out of like three different co-working offices. So. It's not just one office. And they said, oh, well, you know, let's sit down and I think we need to have an intervention with this person and, and talk with them about this and this and this. And I went, you know, you can't change another person and an intervention isn't going to necessarily do that. The only person that you can really change is yourself. So if you want to try and have a better relationship, then decide what you're going to do within yourself to manage that relationship better. Yep, and yeah, because it was like, oh, well, if we did this and this, I, you know, and I'm not going to be specific because these people listen to my show now. So I sit here and I go, I don't think that would, um, that's going to be the answer. Just learn how mm -hmm. to manage it and just be like water on a duck back, on a duck's back. Just let it roll right off. Yeah. Okay, chopped. What four ingredients can you take? And maybe I can just get I'm gonna I could change it up and tell you four ingredients if you want and see if you could make it because I know your answer. Um, but that's really good to know because there's always should be every man I think and every person honestly, but a man for sure because most of them don't like. <laughs> <laughs> so they should have a signature dish that they can whip up and make it look easy and people going what? You know, you did all this. So what's your I signature have, dish? I have a few of those. <laughs> really? Okay, I know one. So tell me what the first one is. Tell our listeners. Uh, it's Alfredo sauce made from scratch. I learned it at the Fat Tuscan uh, restaurant in Gainesville from Chef Michelle over there. So shout out to Chef Michelle in Gainesville. Basically, you take a bunch of butter and you put a bunch of chopped fresh garlic in. You let it roast and brown, you know, in the fry pan. Then you add some heavy cream and you stir it up and you let it simmer down a bit then you add some a little bit of parmesan sauce and you have a nice alfredo sauce in about 15 20 minutes or so yep that was four ingredients that's pretty good and before the show started we were talking about uh carbonara sauce it's kind of the same thing to me they just throw bacon in it and i think you throw bacon in anything and it's awesome so you can't go wrong with that yeah. I like okay. to go with straight straight butter i also love like brown butter mazithra on spaghetti as well is really good too. Mm, how do you do that one? Um, well, you brown the butter, you add a bunch of like uh, shaved mazithra or grated mazithra cheese to it, which is hard to find. Uh, yeah, I don't even food. know what that was when you were saying yeah, that. Uncle. I have no there, idea. There's a, um, there's a restaurant on the West Coast. I forget, it's called the, the it's like the train something rather, but it's pretty popular, but brown butter mazithra spaghetti is very popular one. They're signature dishes. I also make a, a gorgonzola sauce, a pasta with um, 
chopped uh, pistachios, unsalted pistachios. Ooh. My cousin Franco, Franco Pizzoli of uh, the Tuscan Cafe, I believe, in or Tuscan Trattoria in Scottsdale, who's a world famous chef, former, he's a Michelin level chef. Um, he actually taught me what's called Peña Pizzani, which is it's basically Alfredo sauce, but with a bunch of uh, sauteed onions in there too, and sweet Italian sausage as well. Yum. Okay, yeah. everything that you're talking about is Italian. So is that your favorite type of cuisine to make? Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Do you know I how to make... I like, I like to have a glass of red wine and put on a bunch of tunes and just kind of get into the manual, you know, the dexterity of cooking everything and preparing it, you know, the mise en place to get it ready to go and just cooking it just right, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like... It's like, it's a great way to get out of my head. Just focus on a fun little project and then it's delicious. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to give you four ingredients and tell me what you would do with them. Yeah. Okay, because I think you like puzzles too. So <laughs> you're going to get to have tomatoes. You get to have, um, what is that? Cheese whip in the jar, you know? You get to have, because you really? like pasta. <laughs> Yeah, you get to have any pasta that you like, and then you also have uh, tuna fish. Oh, huh, that's hard. I, I do have a, my daughter and I came up with a, something called Nacho Mama's Mac and Cheese. Mm. It's mac and cheese using the queso sauce in the jar with grilled chicken. Um, now you can add any spices. You're not limited. Just you know, that's your four core ingredients. Tomatoes. I don't know about tuna. Well, actually, let's. Well, you didn't say canned tuna. No. No, you didn't say that. I guess I would go with a mac and cheese with you know cheese sauce, and put in the chopped tomatoes. You know, I take the little cherry tomatoes. Or grape tomatoes, chop them in half, and then I would probably take the tuna and have a nice, you know, grilled thin sliced tuna on top is what I would do. Mm -hmm. That sounds pretty tasty. Probably, yeah. I'd, probably put, I'd probably put a little bit of dill on it as well because of the tuna. Add some dill in there also. And add some, add some rosemary with a mac and cheese if I could. Mm -hmm. I saw something come through where Panera was having lobster and cheese. I was going, I don't know. I don't think that's down here in Florida. I think that was, I stopped in a Panera while I was in Boston. I went pretty sure that's where the lobster is in. It's in lobster Boston. mac and cheese is pretty popular here. Yeah, I imagine. Because I'm going, eh, it's not down here. We don't, well, it would be popular, but I don't think we have it is the point. Anyway. All right, well, we're going to take just a short break to acknowledge our sponsor, and then we will be right back. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. And we are back to our show. And in this half of the show, we talk about the future of work. This is my favorite part of the show, to be honest, because it's 2030. You know, nobody had eight years later. What's it? What is it going to look like now? Nobody could see COVID coming, right? Except, you know what? I don't know about you, but the matrix is real in my mind. You know, we live <laughs> in it. This is it. I think Terminator will be coming at some point in time. 
Um, what do I think science fiction movies and superhero movies actually can tell us a lot about what the future could be? Not like, you know, superhero superheroes, but like Tony Stark superhero Batman. Anyway, they have fun toys. What do you think it's going to look like in 2030? And we can start with like AR, VR, or we can go with COVID's impact. Where do you want to start? Um, I was thinking, like, let's talk uh, VR, actually. Okay, let's go there. So there was a movie called, I think it was called Indecent Proposal back in 1993. Do you remember that one with Demi Moore and Michael Douglas? Is that the one where he was trying to kind of sell his wife for a million dollars? No, that's that's a different one. So, okay. Yeah. Might have been that. I don't think it might have been that one. I forget. I don't think so. Um, was that it? Anyways, I'm trying to figure out which one of it was, but I'm looking yeah, it so up right a, now. Yeah, there was a movie. Yeah, that, it says strangers offer for a million dollars for uh, him to be able to sleep with the guy's wife. Is that what it is? Robert Redford, Demi Moore, oh, and Woody Harrelson. Okay, that's not the one I meant. I meant a different one. Well, there's another movie with Michael Douglas. Let me find it here. Michael Douglas, Seattle. Should we record this at all? Or are we all right? Disclosure? Oh, yeah. Michael Douglas. I don't know about that movie. Yeah, so Disclosure was uh, a thriller where she was the executive of a major software company in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And he was a married guy living over on Bainbridge Island commuting back and forth and she came on to him but the thing was the software they did was actually virtual reality software where you could go into the office simply by putting on a headset and they had virtual file cabinets and things like that with storing all the information and back in I think it was 1999 you know, 99 I was working for KPMG and I actually wrote a white paper saying that if we if we did essentially if we just did remote work from home 100 percent, we would be able to massively reduce um, the cost of operations for our company we'd be able to reduce the cost of, of gasoline because there'd be less demand uh, we could get rid of you know we could basically not need to pay so much we could reduce the cost of operations by getting rid of our offices that we were going into because when i was at kpmg they're charging like two fifty an hour for me, plus eleven bucks an hour for me for my our office in downtown Boston, which I thought was dumb because I was never there. And literally, all I was doing was look at a computer screen the whole time. You know, I'd I'd have to travel to New York every week and travel back on Fridays, which is very expensive. Putting me at the Starwood Hotel in New York City, I just thought this is just such a waste of money. And it turns out I was right. So I was actually interviewed. I wrote that white paper as a proposal somehow. McKinsey and company got it. They did an interview with me about it. So, but it turns out with a pandemic, I was actually right. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, well, I mean, I think anybody can do the later, math and uh, can figure it out. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, but I, I predicted it. I, I proposed it 20 years ago and it just kind of got forced on us by the unfortunate death of millions of people, you know, so. So kind of being remote. Kind of depends on the personality type you are. Do you like being around people? Or, I know most men say, no, I do not want to be around people. I like being around people, but I don't like working around other people. Mm. There is a difference. 
Yeah, I mean, this may sound arrogant, but I'm usually the top performer in an individual role. And then I get bugged by other people that have them have me teach them how to do it and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I definitely am more of a lone wolf, as it were, I'm more of a mm -hmm. maverick personality. So I'd rather do that. When I was doing mortgages, I always people would listen to me, they pick up my scripts, they would follow that, you know, they come ask me questions. And like, I wasn't the manager of them, I kept telling the manager, I said, you know, can you please, you know, teach them how to do their job, so I don't have to. So they put them through training, but then they listen to me, because I was a top performer as a mortgage originator, they'd always come over and ask me questions, I help them, but still it was a big distraction for me, because when you're trying to make money on commission, you're trying to just like, do as much as you can, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and I just, I have, I like, I like being social on Slack, you know, with other people. That's kind of fun. We do Zoom calls once, like an OSIM, we have happy hours, you know, over mm -hmm. Zoom. We all kind of like, we had a big celebration, I think last Friday or two Fridays ago, where they all sent us a bottle of champagne. We opened it together. We cheered going live with a new client, you know. So I feel like, we're pretty social with each other, you know, during the workday. It's just over Slack or Zoom, you know. Mm -hmm. I definitely prefer working remotely by myself because I can really get in the zone, as it were, and really just execute, you know, and put up some high numbers. Like we're hiring two or three engineers per week. Uh, we hired six people two weeks ago, six people last week. We've got two. I think we've got today's Tuesday. I think we've got. Two my two hires today already. I'm waiting on another acceptance from a guy in Austria today. So hopefully we'll be at three by the end of you know today on Tuesday, and we're going to keep pushing that number of four to six hires per week. So you so really you mentioned you mentioned virtual reality. How would we include that together though in this? Because Zoom isn't virtual reality. I mean that's real. Yeah. You know. Sure. I, and, I, I think that, you know, I think the metaverse is going to, you know, metaverse with the, the blockchain development and the utilities that you can get with the metaverse via blockchain development, NFTs, things like that, makes it absolutely possible to just live and breathe, you know, not really breathe, but live in the metaverse, you know, have those same interactions. Yeah, a lot of people have, um, like Orlando in one area, we have a digital twin so that they can test things out in a virtual you know, virtual reality environment and see, well, if we did this, if there was a hurricane and it came through here, what would that impact be? And they yeah. can, you know, actually forecast it. I find it interesting. There's a really cool show that was on TV. Um, it's on the Disney Channel and it's called um, Draining the Oceans. Have you seen that? Um, I did, I was watching it for a little bit. You know, I was watching that. I like how they use the technology because they go and they take um, giant robots, scan the floor of the oceans, and then take that data and use it in a 3D situation to pull back the water and then be able to find all types of, we'll call it treasure and, you know, ships and things of that nature and figure out, well, what happened? They're still trying to find that uh, plane, that Malaysian plane. They haven't found it though, though yet. But... Yeah. I find that really interesting um, that that is how it's being used to solve mysteries or debunk myths, too. Like, you could do it with that. The Devil's Triangle. Is it really the Devil's Triangle? No. But why is it called that? Who knows? Um, so, Not virtual. 
Yeah. <laughs> I really feel like um, virtual reality is one thing, but, you know, holograms are going to be the thing that's more different. And being able to go to, are you a Star Trek or Star Wars fan? Which one? Back behind me. Oh, yeah. Star Wars. <laughs> is I like Star Trek, too, though. I grew up on Star Trek. I, I, I mostly, um, I watch Picard. You know, I watch some of the Star Trek shows, but mostly Star Wars stuff. Yeah. So in Star Trek, when, you know, they would say, beam me up and, you know, the particles of the person are all dissipating and then they go someplace else. I, I think that's got to be in play and they probably have been doing it for a while. They just haven't been able to um, make it come back as a whole person or the whole thing. Well, then you lose memories and you lose the soul. You know, that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about the soul. For sure. Yeah, it's not always a, a person. And then there's cloning and just different aspects of what they can do and what it's an ethical dilemma. Now you're in law too. So what do you think about having these types of, um, I don't know, is there a place where we should draw the line where we shouldn't not necessarily on cloning, but in like virtual reality or digital twins or things of that nature? What are your thoughts about it? I don't see any, I mean, there's got to be some sort of conflicts. Obviously, we don't want to have, you know, encourage things like child tra child sex trafficking or anything like that. Like, whatever, you know, I, I think that'd be terrible, personally. I mean, sure. I mean, it technically is a victimless crime because it's just a digital thing, but I don't know if we'd want to make, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that, to be honest with you. So It's a hard yeah. question. You know, if, if there's if there's it's a victimless crime, then maybe it's not that big of a deal. And you know, is it though? Crime. Because even though maybe it's not a physical assault, it can be emotional and mental. You know, in some of these cases. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, and I'm talking about like if the person being assaulted was purely a like a cartoon with no right. actual person on the other side. You know, like like a like a like a bot of some kind. You know, right. I don't know. It's it's a hard it's a hard ethical question. I mean, healthcare ethics is hard enough as it is. You know, getting into digital ethics, you know, with with non you know non sentient you know entities or whatever is even harder. So, I think that's going to be the trend. You know, we know cybersecurity is obviously huge and really big, but as we move into this, it's creating a whole different way of looking at what are the legal boundaries that we should be following where where do ethics get crossed and yeah there's just so yeah, many the whole question of government overreach as well you know so mm -hmm. i mean who's going to police that so i don't know that's a that's a tough but i'll tell you that whatever i do online is not illegal so <laughs> yeah yeah for any of us right now well for most of us i'll say not for any of us so the um robots how many robots do you actually see up there in Boston? I'm curious because down here in Florida, we have some robots that are like serving food inside of restaurants. Like here they are, little George Jetson kind of little robots. Here you go. And then they also have them in some state parks, not only in restaurants. And we have some autonomous uh, vehicles. What do you guys have up there? Um, Stop and Shop Grocery Store has some sort of robot that goes around and looks for spills, I think. I'm not really sure what it does. And Kira Sushi has a robot that delivers drinks, you know, to your 
your uh, your 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 table. Oh. Otherwise, I really don't see. I don't really don't see robots up here at all. We do have Boston Dynamics up here, which is a major robotic manufacturer. Um, but I don't really see robots on the regular up here. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering because MIT is there, and I would think that they play around with a lot of those types of possibilities. Right. I mean, I'm on the outskirts of Boston, so I'm more in a bedroom community versus a, a tech hotbed. Gotcha. So. so when it comes to anything that's, um, and I'll go back to the robot thing one more time, just because I want to give a shout out to FIRST. That's a whole acronym and it all stands for something, you know, blah, 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 robotics. I, I, I was actually in Gainesville, I was one of the judges for the robotics competition in the junior high schools in Gainesville in Alachua County. It's amazing to watch kids do this and it's exciting too. I, I really enjoy it quite a bit. The um, other part about robots is, you know, how much of it are they actually using? We see them in the surgery centers. Um, I don't know if you guys have a lot of manufacturing up there, right? In Boston, I don't think so. Really? Yeah. So the, again, that's where I'm kind of going. You're more of like, you know, education center of the world with all yeah. the schools that are there. There are more knowledge workers here. Yeah. So just wondering, and, you know, they have a lot of people that are out there fishing and pulling in seafood. So I was going, are there being used out in the oceans and how so? Save that for another time. So coming back over here, um, blended remote on site. I know you mentioned the white paper, but what do you think it's going to look like by the time we get to 2030? I kind of think that people are going to go back and more have a have more of a hybrid work environment. I think for, I think for knowledge workers, it's just going to be 100% remote. I really do. When you call them knowledge workers, what does that mean? You mean teachers, or are we talking about? Yeah, I mean people that you know use a computer primarily for their inter their work interface. Doesn't everybody? Uh, I mean, teachers will, yeah, I mean, I guess teachers, I, I think teaching will probably be at the upper levels will probably be remote. I think that probably it's fair to have some in person for younger, younger kids, you know. Uh, I think that schools are going to disappear. Well, like higher ed schools and going to a higher ed school, it'll begin to like clean the pack out, so to speak. Um, People will go to college for the social interaction, and it will be something that's, I think, can even become an elitist thing, to be honest, uh, to be on a campus. Whereas, you know, if you're going to school, most of the people would be doing it online. Arizona State set that pre precedence, you know, a long time ago with being able to go online as the number one school in the nation, the biggest school. Well, the irony is that when I was getting my MBA, at Arizona State back in the 90s, you know, early 90s, we were making fun of the University of Phoenix MBA, you know, students, you know, and then turns out that University of Phoenix kind of kicked Arizona State's butt <laughs> in mm -hmm. terms of online. So I think University of Phoenix is probably a larger online institution, to be honest with you. Mm. All right. Well, I don't know. I'd have to go Google it and look it up, but I don't feel like doing it right now. But I'm going to go check it for sure. I'll come back and I'll put something in the show notes that you, okay, you called it in the show description and it'll be out there for everyone to know. Best mentoring advice that you would like to share with our li listeners? 
Well, for the tech community, I would definitely say don't burn any bridges because it's a very small community. Even in a place like Boston, you're going to run into people over and over and over again that you worked with before and that you probably had a conflict with before. It's just, it's it, the tech community, at least for tech is, it, I don't know about other communities, but for technology, it's a very small community and you got to maintain friendships or at least some modicum of respect, you know, with other people. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. And you never know when you need anybody. One of the things that I've learned is that I've worked with for five years, different, you know, types of interns in all different industries. And when I need something, I can call them and I'd say, Hey, I need this. So this place that I'm in today, it's actually a previous intern that worked with me. He runs this place. He runs this whole creative village here. Um, and I find it, you know, I say, Hey, I need this and this. And he goes, okay, fine. Just send it to me. I'll take care of it. And it gets distributed out on all of the TVs. And I appreciate his, his support for sure, because you never know whether that person that you're mentoring is your intern or for you, because you're having to teach all of these salespeople, they'll come back to you and say, Hey, you know, yep. I have this as an opportunity. Can we collab on this? And you can go, sure, maybe depends on what the terms are. Right. Yep. Yeah. Well, I find that to be very true. How can our listeners find you? What is the best way? Um, they can email me at msutherland at ocient.com, O-C-I-E-N-T.com. Our website is uh, ocient.com. And my LinkedIn profile is just look me up on LinkedIn under Marsh Sutherland. And my Twitter handle is at Marsh Sutherland. Oh, by the way, on your LinkedIn, it's Marsh Cochran Sutherland. I thought I changed that. Yeah, that's what I, I went to your profile and I pulled that. At least I, I'm pretty sure I have your right profile. Well, it used to be Marsh Cochran Sutherland. I did change it to Marsh Sutherland, though. I'm looking at it right now. Do you have two profiles? No, I used to have it Marsh Cochran Sutherland because long story, my last name Cochran was my maiden, you know, name and all that. But I changed it to Sutherland, so it's easier. I did change it to. Marsh Sutherland at the end, um, you know, about a year ago on LinkedIn to keep it simpler. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I found a different profile for you or not, but that's the link that I pulled. Okay, well, Marsh Sutherland is correct. So Gotcha. Anyway, it'll find you. Well, I want to thank you for being a guest on the show. I really enjoyed this time to get to know you better. And when I come to Boston, then I'm going to say, okay, I'll bring lobster, go and make something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that'll Perfect. be fun, but it'll be like lobster, I guess, Mac and Mac and lobster then. Yeah, there you go. We could do that. I could just make straight up lobster and grill it. Ooh, that's super good too. <laughs> yeah. I've never made brown butter. So now I'm going to go look that one up. I've seen it before, but I go, it looks like it's burnt, but it's not really. So it's really good. Mm, I bet it is. Butter's always good. Well, thank you so much, and I'll be talking with you again soon. Thanks, Isabel. As we wrap up this show, we want to say thank you to our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. Thank you to our production team, Ayana Saunders, and our new incoming interns. Our music is by Sophie Lloyd, and if you would like to have your inclusion tip of the week shared on our show, record your tip, send your audio file to info at e4c.tech, and include your name, your job role, and where you work. We will email you our Interim Pursuit game green screens for your next video conference call. 
And please be sure to visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real skills-based diversity and inclusive culture while skilling your people for the future of work. Thank you for supporting The Intern Whisper and subscribe to our show on Podbean or your favorite podcast channel.